Section 14 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 4, Part 2. The Queen had now resided upwards of six years in France, and all her habits and feelings began strongly to return to their original channel. A certain degree of liberality and political wisdom, which the strong pressure of calamity had forced into her mind, vanished after the war of the Fronde was pacified. The first step she took in utter opposition to her duty as the widow of Charles I and the queen mother of the royal family was acting on her resolution of educating her younger children as Catholics. With this view, she placed her little daughter Henrietta under the tuition of the Capuchin, whose manuscript we have already quoted. Père Cyprian Gamache was one of those men, such as we often see among Christian clergymen of various denominations. The sincerity of belief and the simplicity of heart and kindness of manner of the old friar must have made him far more persuasive to the queen's children and household, who were of Church of England principles, than his learning, his talents as an author, or his skill as a controversialist in the subtleties of disputation. The picture he draws of the royal child, who was given up by the queen entirely to his tutelage, is a pretty simple sketch, and most valuable to us besides, as an insight into the domestic manners of the banished court of England, with which the pair Cyprian brings us closely acquainted, in recording his hopes and fears regarding the conversion of those who profess the principles of the Church of England. The Queen, says Père Cyprian Gamache, had, during the life of the king, her husband, employed every effort in her letters to obtain the permission of her royal husband to bring up their youngest child as a Catholic. And we must observe that, if she had succeeded, Father Cyprian would most certainly have had the infinite pleasure in naming the circumstance. He, however, reconciled the queen to her open disobedience of her husband's last injunctions by pointing out to her that King Charles, with many other professors of Church of England principles, allowed that a good person of the Roman Catholic faith could be saved. It is hard that the liberality of the Church of England should be turned against her cause by controversialists, but this is neither the first nor the last instance. As soon, then, continues Père Cyprian, as the first sparks of reason began to light in the mind of the precious child, the queen honored me with the command to instruct her, and her majesty took the trouble to lead her herself into the chapel of the Louvre, where I was teaching the little ones of poor humble folk the principles of Christianity, and there she gave a noble instance of humility by placing her royal daughter below them, and charging her all the time I catechized to listen. Then I taught her in her turn, even as the most simple of my company, how to learn to seek God, who made us. The princess profited so well by these humble examples, that as she went out, she said aloud, that she would always come to hear me teach those little children. Père Cyprian soon after began to give the princess Henrietta a regular private course of instruction, in which he mentions, that he continually pressed on her mind that she ought to consider herself eternally indebted to the troubles of her royal family for the opportunity of being brought up a Catholic. The Countess of Morton, who still continued governess to the princess, was always present when Père Cyprian gave the little princess her religious instruction. 
this lady had been brought up a member of the Church of England, and still continued in its principles. Father Cyprian had an extreme desire to convert the Countess. One day, that lady said to her charge, I believe Father Cyprian intends his catechism as much for me as for your royal highness. This casual remark did not fall unheeded on the mind of her loving pupil, who immediately confided it to her tutor, and he, who owns that Lady Morton, had accurately divined his intentions, was wonderfully encouraged in his hopes. Soon after, the queen being present at his tuition, the little princess, at the end, expressed a great wish that everyone believed in her religion. Since you have so much zeal, said the queen, I wonder, my daughter, you do not begin by trying to convert your governess. Madam, replied the little princess, with childish earnestness, I am doing so as much as I can. And how do you set about it? asked the queen. Madam, replied the princess, in her infantine innocence, I begin by embracing my governess, I clasp her round the neck, I kiss her a great many times, and then I say, Do be converted, Madam Morton, be a Catholic, Madam Morton, Father Cyprian says you must be a Catholic to be saved, and you have heard him as well as me, Madame Morton. Be then a Catholic, ma bonne dame. Between the entreaties and caresses of this sweet prattler, whom she loved so entirely, and the persuasions of Père Cyprian, poor Lady Morton, who was no great theologian, was almost coaxed out of her religion. Nevertheless, her affections only were engaged, not her religious principles, as Père Cyprian acknowledges in his manuscript, with more anger than he expresses in any other passage. The political horizon in 1652 darkened on every side round the House of Stuart. A strong military despotism was established in the British islands by the successful general, who found himself at the head of the veteran troops, who proved victors at the time when the people were utterly worn out with the horrors of anarchical strife. Despotism, in the hands of a military man, sufficiently cruel and cunning, is always the strongest of all governments. Therefore, it is not very marvelous that Cromwell was finally able to dictate a peace to Anne of Austria, who was not the strongest-minded female that ever governed an empire. During the course of these long-pending negotiations, Queen Henrietta requested Cardinal Mazarin, in her name, to demand the annual payment of her dower. Cromwell promptly replied, that she had never been recognized as queen consort of Great Britain by the people. Consequently, she had no right to this dower. The usurper would have, doubtless, found some other excuse to deprive the helpless queen of her maintenance, if her own act indeed, in her inexperienced girlhood, had not furnished him with so injurious a reply. It will be remembered that Henrietta refused to be crowned as queen consort, because her religious bigotry would not permit her to assist in the liturgy of the Church of England, and this refusal, which proved the first step to the misfortunes of her husband, obtained for her, in course of time, this bitter insult, which struck at her character as a woman, as well as her rank as queen, and had probably a prospective view towards the illegitimization of her children. Henrietta observed, with some dignity to Mazarin, that if she were not considered by the English nation as the wife and consort of their late sovereign, the question was, what had she been? 
and the obvious answer, that a daughter of France could have been otherwise than a wife of the King of England, was more disgraceful to her country than to herself, and if the King of France could submit to such a public stigma on his royal honor in a treaty, she must rest satisfied, being perfectly content herself, with the constant respect paid her as queen, by her husband and his loyal subjects. Although the usurper would not pay Queen Henrietta's dower, he returned to her the young Duke of Gloucester, declaring that Henry Stuart, third son of the late Charles I, had leave to transport himself beyond seas. Charles II was about to be driven a wanderer from his mother's home at the Louvre, when young Gloucester arrived there. Queen Henrietta acknowledged the authority of her eldest son, as king over her children. She therefore requested him at his departure, to leave her youngest son with her, for she represented, that he had been brought up as a prisoner in England, without learning either manly exercises or languages, that he had seen nothing of courtly manners or good company, till he came to Paris, and that it was not right to take him from a city where he had the best opportunity in the world for acquiring everything of the kind. The queen was very importunate, and the young king acknowledged that her reasons were good, for he had no funds to educate his young brother, or even to support him, according to his quality. His only objection was that he feared that Gloucester would be perverted in his religion. Queen Henrietta assured him that she would not suffer any such attempt to be made, and she added, that the Queen Regent of France, as some compensation for her discourtesy in driving him away, had augmented her pension at the rate of 2,000 francs per month, and this, she said, will enable me to maintain Gloucester. King Charles, before he left Paris, made his mother reiterate her promise that his young brother should not be brought up a Catholic, and then departed to wander over Europe, wherever his evil fortune chose to lead him. He settled his headquarters at Cologne, where a hospitable widow received him into her house, and lodged him for two years gratis. To aggravate her misfortunes, Queen Henrietta, some time before, had received the news of the death of her son-in-law, the Prince of Orange, a severe loss for her family, as it threw the preponderance of power in Holland into the hands of the Republican party there, the sworn friends of Cromwell. The death of Henry Frederick, the father of her son-in-law, had occurred at a fatal time for Charles I in 1647, and now her daughter's husband was suddenly carried off by the smallpox at the early age of 22, leaving his young widow overwhelmed with grief and in a dangerous state of health being ready to become a mother. She brought forth a posthumous son, three days after the death of her husband. This boy, the first grandchild Queen Henrietta had, was afterwards William III, the elective king of Great Britain. Whilst the Prince of Orange lived, Queen Henrietta and her children had always, in all their wanderings and distresses, found a hospitable welcome at his court, now she saw her daughter left a young widow of nineteen, the mother of a fatherless son, with an inimical party to contend against in Holland, which was supported by all the might of Cromwell's successful despotism. How the young princess of Orange struggled through all the difficulties that environed her, and reared her son without seeing him wholly deprived of his father's inheritance, is one of the marvels of modern history. The princess of Orange was no longer able to receive her brothers openly at court, the burgomasters of Holland, being informed by Cromwell that such reception was tantamount to a declaration of war against him. 
Charles II therefore established his abode at Cologne, whence he frequently visited his sister as a private individual. A great alteration took place in the conduct of Queen Henrietta at this disastrous epoch, which was occasioned by the change of her confessor. Father Phillips had held that office since the second year of her marriage. He was a mild, unambitious man, under whose influence the best points of her character had appeared. Unfortunately for the peace of her family, he died at the close of 1652, and his place was filled by Ab Montague, a diplomatic priest, who was naturalized in France, and had long been immersed in the political intrigues of that court. It is a singular fact that Montague was brother to the Puritan, Lord Kimbolton, who had taken so active a part in revolutionizing England at the commencement of the Civil War. If we may judge by results, neither the Puritan nor the priestly brother were very ardent lovers of peace. The same restless spirit that made the Puritan disturb the quiet of Charles I's kingdom impelled the Jesuit brother to break the harmony that hitherto subsisted between the unfortunate sovereign's family. The first fruits of Ab Montague's polemic activity was to suggest to the Queen of France that it was injurious to the Catholic religion to permit the Church of England's service to be celebrated under the roof of the Louvre. He likewise accused Queen Henrietta of great sin, because she had established it there, for she had, from her first settlement in that palace, set apart one of her largest saloons for that purpose, where our church ritual was performed with great reverence by Dr. Cozens, the exiled Bishop of Durham. The young king and the Duke of York, who were both at that time zealously attached to the religion of their father, attended its service regularly when they were in Paris, likewise any persons of the queen's household who belonged to the Church of England. Queen Henrietta at first was grieved at the intolerance of Ab Montague. She expressed to her ladies how much the loss of Father Phillips had embarrassed her, and said with displeasure, that it was Ab Montague who had induced her sister-in-law to break up her establishment at the Louvre and transfer her residence to the Palais Royal. This was a severe blow to the English exiles, for the Queen Regent then held her own court at the Palais Royal, and Queen Henrietta lost the independence of a separate dwelling. The Queen Regent, at the same time, forbade her to receive her son, Charles II, to visit the Palais Royal, on account of political expediency, and likewise declared that no religious worship, excepting according to the ritual of the Roman Catholic Church, should take place within the walls of her palace. Thus the Duke of Gloucester, and other members of the Church of England, attached to Queen Henrietta's family, were deprived of all opportunities of worship, excepting at the chapel of Sir Richard Brown, for this gentleman had been ambassador from Charles I, and still retained the residence and privileges of the embassy, among others, a chapel. Thither the Duke of Gloucester went every day, as he walked home from his riding and fencing academy, and when the Duke of York returned from his campaigns, he likewise attended his religious duties of the Church of England at the same chapel. Thus matters continued for some months after Charles II left his young brother under his mother's care. Her confessor, Montague, viewed the daily attendance of the Stuart princes at divine service very invidiously. However, he formed his plans in secret and began to work on Queen Henrietta's mind accordingly. The fruits of his machinations appeared in due time. It was probably owing to the influence of Ab Montague that Queen Henrietta found the convent of Chalot at a period when scarcely a hope remained of the restoration of the royal family. 
After her independent residence at the Louvre was broken up, Queen Henrietta yearned for some private home, where she could pass part of her time in perfect quiet, without being subjected to the slavery of living in public with the French court. Such a retreat was needful for her health and peace of mind, and we scarcely reckon it among the sins of bigotry, for it vexed no person's conscience, and provided for a community of harmless and charitable women, who were at that time struggling with distress. The nuns of Port Royal offered their house when Queen Henrietta wished for religious retirement. Whether or not the stigma of predestinarianism, afterwards called Jansenism, had then been affixed to this community by Ab Montague is not mentioned, but the queen declined the offer. She took under her protection a very poor community of the nuns of the visitation of St. Mary, and settled them in a house which Catherine de' Medicis had built as a villa on the bold eminence at Chalot, opposite to the Champ de Mar. Queen Henrietta purchased this estate of the heirs of the Mariscal de Bassompierre, to whom her father had granted it, but the foundation was at first beset with many difficulties. At last, she obtained for her nuns the protection of the Queen Regent and the Archbishop of Paris, and the latter expedited the letter's patent, under the appellation of the foundation of the Queen of England. Queen Henrietta chose for her own apartments those whose windows look without, and a most noble view they must have commanded over Paris. Her reasons were, she said, that she might prevent her ladies from having access to the secluded portions of the convent, unless they obtained the especial leave of the abbess, lest they might trouble the calm of the votaresses. As for herself, she usually received her visits in the parlor of the convent, and even came thither to consult her physician. In this convent was educated her youngest daughter, Henrietta. The queen used to tell the nuns that on their prayers and good example, she depended for the conversion of the rest of her family. On these conversions, Queen Henrietta had now entirely fixed her heart. Above all things, she wished to interrupt the attendance of the young Duke of Gloucester at the Church of England Chapel, her chief counsellor, Ab Montague, about the close of the year 1654, either discovered or affected to discover that the Duke of Gloucester required a course of education which did not allow him so much freedom, because he had formed an imprudent intimacy at the academies of exercise with some young wild French gallants who were like to mislead his youth. This was by no means an unlikely circumstance, as he walked to and from the academies like any other day scholar, but it appears only to have been urged as an excuse for sending Gloucester to the Jesuits' college, not only to be tamed, but to be cut off from all opportunities of attending worship at the ambassador's chapel. The idea of the severity of the Jesuits' plan of education was terrifying even to Catholic boys. What it was to young Gloucester may be imagined. A long contest ensued between the queen and her son. He pleaded his religion and positively refused to enter the walls of the college. Finding that he was resolute, she compromised the matter not much to his satisfaction, by sending him to spend the month of November with her confessor Montague, who chose to retire at the season of Advent to his benefice, the Abbey of Pontoise. At first, Mr. Lovell, the young duke's tutor, accompanied him, but the queen made an excuse to send for this gentleman to Paris, and Gloucester was left alone with Montague and his monks. Then the abbe confided to the young prince that it was his mother's intention to educate him for a cardinal, at the same time, he strenuously represented to him 
that as his sole hopes of advancement in life must proceed from the royal family of France, who were willing to adopt him as a son, how much it would be to his interest to embrace immediately the Catholic religion, on various points of which he offered to convince him instantaneously by argument. If young Gloucester had even been a Catholic, there is no doubt, but he would have made the most lively resistance to a religious destination. As it was, he pleaded vehemently his Church of England creed, and the promise his royal mother had made to the king, his brother, not to tamper with it, adding, that it was shameful to assail him with controversy in his tutor's absence, who could and would answer it. At Gloucester's earnest request, Mr. Lovell was sent back to Pontoise. The queen afterwards permitted him to bring his pupil to Paris, where he again attended the service of the Church of England at Sir Richard Brown's chapel. Queen Henrietta, a short time after, had a stormy interview with Gloucester and told him that all Ab Montague had said to him was by her direction, and that as to his urging against her, her promise to the king, she must observe, that she had promised not to force him in his belief, but she had not said that she would not show him the right way to heaven. She had, besides, a right to represent to him how very desperate his worldly fortunes were, as a Protestant in France, but if he would embrace a Catholic faith and accept a cardinal's hat, she could promise him unbounded wealth in French benefices." It was scandalous of the queen thus to tempt her young son, who in return, as she equivocated with her promise made to his king and brother, solemnly pleaded to her the promise that his murdered father had exacted from him in their last interview, never to renounce the faith of the Church of England, which, infant as he was then, he distinctly remembered. Henrietta hardened her heart against this tender appeal, and soon after removed her son's faithful tutor, Mr. Lovell. She bade Gloucester, Prepare to go to the Jesuits' college, under penalty of her malediction and utter renunciation. But before the day that the queen had appointed to remove him to walls, which he deemed a prison, she received a letter of remonstrance, which came from his brother, Charles II, then at Cologne, reminding her of her promise, and forbidding her to enclose his subject and brother in the Jesuits' college. He likewise wrote to his exiled subjects in Paris, to do all their poverty could permit to aid his brother, if the queen proceeded to extremities. Queen Henrietta testified the utmost anger when she read the letter from the young king, and found by it that Gloucester had appealed against her authority. The young king's opinion of these proceedings is freely expressed in the following letter to his brother, in which the tenor of the complaint that Gloucester wrote to him, and the letter that Queen Henrietta received from him, may be ascertained, though neither are forthcoming. Charles II to the Duke of Gloucester, Cologne, November 10th, 1654. Dear brother, I have received yours without a date, in which you tell me that Mr. Montague has endeavored to pervert you from your religion. I do not doubt but you remember very well the commands I left with you, at my going away, concerning that point. I am confident you will observe them. Yet your letters that come from Paris say that it is the queen's purpose to do all she can to change your religion, in which if you do hearken to her or to anybody else in that matter, you must never think to see England or me again, and whatsoever mischief shall fall on me or my affairs from this time, I must lay all upon you as being the only cause of it. Therefore consider well what it is to be, 
not only the cause of ruining a brother who loves you so well, but also of your king and country. Do not let them persuade you, either by force or fair promises. The first, they neither dare nor will use, and for the second, as soon as they have perverted you, they will have their end, and then they will care no more for you. I am also informed, there is a purpose to put you into the Jesuits' college, which I command you, on the same grounds, never to consent unto, and whensoever anybody goes to dispute with you in religion, do not answer them at all. For though you have reason on your side, yet they, being prepared, will have the advantage of anybody that is not upon the same familiarity with the argument as they are. If you do not consider what I say unto you, remember the last words of your dead father, which were, to be constant to your religion, and never to be shaken in it, which, if you do not observe, this will be the last time you will hear from, dear brother, your most affectionate, Charles the Second. The queen, notwithstanding the royal authority of her eldest son, resolved not to give up her intentions without trying another mode of shaking the resolution of young Gloucester. One day after dinner, she took him apart. She embraced him, she kissed him, and with all the sweetness possible, told him how tender an affection she bore to him, and how much it grieved her that love itself should compel her to proceed with seeming severity. You are weary, my child, she continued, of being entreated, and truly I weary of it too, but I will shorten your time of trial. Give one more hearing to Ab Montague, sequester yourself in your apartment, without entering into any diversion, meditate on his words, and then either send or bring me a full and final answer. The Duke of Gloucester, before this conversation commenced, had perceived that his mother, as soon as she had risen from table, meant to have a private conference with him, and fearful some admission should be extorted from him, favorable to her views, he had sent young Griffin, the gentleman of his bedchamber, to fetch the Marquess of Ormond to his assistance as soon as he could come, for the king, his brother, had placed him under this nobleman's protection in regard to his religion. When the queen had finished all her entreaties and caresses, Gloucester retired to his chamber in obedience to her commands. Ab Montague came directly to him and commenced a long course of arguments to influence his determination, and then urged him to know what answer he was to carry to her majesty, his mother. Gloucester said, None, resolving first to see the Marquis of Ormond. Then, said Montague, I shall return in an hour, and carry to her majesty your answer. At that moment, the Marquess entered, according to the summons sent to him by Griffin, and when the young duke found himself supported by the presence and testimony of his father's friend, he turned to the Ab Montague and said, that his final answer to his mother was, that he meant to continue firm in the religion of the Church of England. The Ab answered abruptly, then it is her majesty's command that you see her face no more. Gloucester was deeply agitated at this message, with the utmost earnestness, he entreated that he might be permitted a last interview with the queen to ask her parting blessing. This, Montague said, he was empowered to refuse. Gloucester remained in despair. His brother, the Duke of York, came to him and with great tenderness pitied his misfortune. York went to his royal mother and interceded earnestly for his brother, but in vain. Henrietta was inexorable. She violently reproached York and declared that she would henceforth signify her pleasure to neither of her sons, 
except by the medium of her confessor, Montague. York returned to Gloucester's apartments in the Palais Royal with this message. It was Sunday morning, before church time. The conference of the royal brothers was interrupted by the entrance of Ab Montague, who renewed the controversy by representing to Gloucester the destitution in which he would be plunged by his mother's renunciation. He advised him to speak to her himself, as she was then going to mass at her convent of Chalot. He added, that the queen had proposals to make to him which would quite set his heart at rest. I fear, sir, replied the Duke of Gloucester, my mother's proposals will not have that effect, for my heart can have no rest but in the free exercise of my religion. At this moment, the queen passed in her way to her coach. The young duke followed her, and kneeling in her way, asked her maternal blessing. She angrily repulsed him, and haughtily passed on. He remained overwhelmed with sorrow. Upon which the Ab Montague, who was watching the effect that Henrietta's harshness had had on her son, stepped up to him, and in a tone of condolence asked him, What her majesty had said, which had so discomposed him? What I may thank you for, sir, replied the young duke sharply, and it is but reason that what my mother has just said to me, I should repeat to you. Be sure that I see your face no more. So saying, he turned indignantly from his persecutor, and as it was then time for morning service, he went immediately to Sir Richard Brown's chapel, accompanied by his brother, the Duke of York, and these princes comforted themselves by attending devoutly to the liturgy of the persecuted Church of England. When Gloucester returned from the divine service, he went to his apartments as usual, little thinking the course his mother had taken. He found to his consternation that Queen Henrietta had given strict orders that no dinner was to be prepared for him, and he must have starved that day if Lord Hatton had not taken him home to his table and begged him to accept a future lodging at his house. The young prince was, with difficulty, prevailed on to accept his hospitality, for he generously reminded Lord Hatton that it might occasion Cromwell to sequester his estate in England, the remnant of which was, as yet, spared to this banished cavalier. End of section 14